Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brothers and sisters, today we delight in the story, the only path to happiness that exists in this life. The story must be told. And now, a brief reading from the book of Burning Buildings, titled, 14 Dogs. I own 14 dogs, and this is how they all died. Strong Anthony got sucked under a street sweeper, bristled eyeless, bristled to goo. Raw foot choked on all the coins I made him swallow. Tan-Tam and Tampon ascended to heaven, body and all. The rest died from eating expired dog meat, but I wasn't wasting it, no sir. Don't tell me how to raise my dogs. The man sat there in his own filth, waiting to be told anything, but he was alone. It began raining outside, and he heard the location of each hole in his Swiss cheese ceiling. The sun set. He didn't light candles. Despite the soak of the rain, the filth did not subside. Months passed, and organ failure by organ failure, his body did give up. The filth replaced each dead cell from his toes to his eyelids, so he petrified a filth statue for a forgotten Pompeii. The story must be told is a spiritual experience. And it is your life forever now. A new story is released every Tuesday. Repent and subscribe. Captain's Log. It's me, your very bizarrely talking bruiser, Holden McNeely. Holden, you can't be serious with your Shatner impression. This <laughs> is wildly subdued. You've got to start and stop at random intervals. It's me, your incredibly fine acting ability bruiser, Jake Young. And tis I, your emotionless wizard, <laughs> Holden Spock McNeely. I I can't I I can't I can't I can't do I I can't do Spock I Captain I can't do Spock I, I but I can do very old Leonard Nimoy <laughs> It's me Zahanort from Kingdom Hearts Also Bigfoot is a bi- is 
have been a mystery that has settled people forever. And a very desperate Scottish accent as well. <laughs> I cannot do cotton. <laughs> I don't have the power. Hey, everybody. It is our Oh, wait, wait, episode. wait. One more, one more. Okay. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah yeah it is our episode on star trek the original series and this is actually brought to you by a man named sam george london and he just wanted to uh make everybody aware of his dope ass kickstarter campaign so here we go this episode has been supported by spare time comic book writer samuel george london who has a victorian alien adventure comic funding on Kickstarter right now called Beyond Milford Green. And I'm going to take a break from his copy that he wrote. I actually went and checked it out. And so I'm not just bullshit or like, this isn't just like me reading someone's copy. It looks really fucking cool. Um, I highly suggest you go check it out. The art looks amazing. It looks like a really interesting story. So uh, that is a, a Holden McNeely gar- seal of approval. Um, so uh, Beyond Milford Green, which is the follow-up to Milford Green and continues the story of Vic- Victorian villagers Alfie Fairfield and Mary Wells as they take off into space after an epic encounter with some evil aliens known as the Synux. <laughs> Uh, you, if you like the idea of Star Trek with a Victorian twist, be sure to check out and support Beyond Milford Green on Kickstarter right now by following the link signalcomics.com forward slash beyond. Oh, this looks rad as hell. I'm I sorry, know, I opened right? it up it's on my really tablet. It's really cool. Signalcomics.com forward slash beyond. All right, so here we go. Why are we doing an episode on this? I know, right? <laughs> so, Star Trek. I think, are we both guilty of not being big Star Trek fans? I had a phase during my lumpy and pubescent years. Um, still lumpy, but now just fully covered in hair. Um, <laughs> and uh, I watched Voyager. I watched Deep Space Nine. Caught a little bit of Enterprise. Uh, growing up, I liked Next Generation a little bit. But the the original series was just too hokey. It was just too, like, uh, just uh, bad old 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 was bad it was in color which was nice not icky black and white which made me vomit on oh, sight oh yeah i wanted to punch black and white in its stupid nose like uh the uh, you know it's it's uh, when the end of uh the saturday morning cartoons came on and they'd get to like uh, three stooges reruns and you just like just shat yourself in agony anyway um <laughs> Why were we constantly just throwing up and shitting when we were kids watching television, Jake? Because we cared, Holden, and it's that same passion that people come back to again and again and again. I feel like I'm like you in that regard. It was just like a little too early for me, and I didn't have that like dad. I feel like if I had that Star Trek loving dad, I would have. It would have been different. I or had older, a Star Trek loving dad. Or older My dad brother. loved the original series. He uh, kept up with the novels. Uh, to me, to me, it was like Star Wars was this big, epic melodrama, just good versus evil, way more palatable to a little kid, I think. Just these big kind of space battles, whatever. Whereas Star Trek all, always seemed to me like uh, almost, which I think is wrong now, by the way, more sterile, more boring in a weird way, just because it wasn't, oh, the co- guy in the cool mask fighting the other. It was like, oh, they do like, they do like smart Stories. That's not. I'm never. You know. I don't even know how to describe and it. And I just thing, never that got in, into it. Uh, it was the dual. It was. This was the twin batons that kept us away from Star Trek: The Original Series. Uh, number one, the next generation was very sterile. Was very kind of like peaceful and had very staunch rules. And it was kind of based on an older Gene Roddenberry's like very specific moral outlook of the world. One that had been forged from being considered the Grand Puba Star Wars great space bird of the sky whatever and it was like kind of boring they then loosened up once Roddenberry left on amicable terms slash drop dead but like you know it's still uh, it did pick up and then on top of that 
everything in media from like Saturday Night Live to Animaniacs to The Simpsons just shat all over <laughs> yeah, fucking yeah. everything about the original series from like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, from from Captain Kirk, from William Shatner wig girdle jokes to like Spock, like making, you know, Steve Spock was like, I'm not Spock. Uh, you know, Leonard Nimoy yeah, yeah, was like yeah. actively pushing. And we'll against talk about that—the book that he came out with. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not um, Spock. So, like, there was just no reason for us to seem like it was cool. Going back and watching it now, this thing's a fucking dick swinging, action packed, yeah. melodramatic, it's technicolor cool. like pop culture feast. And that's why I was gonna say to you right here, right now, Jake. Um, in do, in putting this episode together, I think finally in my life. I am ready for Star Trek. I'm going to keep watching. I think I get it. I think I totally, and I can't wait to get, because I have friends who religiously watch Star Trek Next Generation, and and I know there are episodes in that series as well, and I'm sure we'll do an episode on that series at some point, but I know there are episodes in that that are some of the greatest episodes in television, period. You know, and I think Star Trek, the original series, also has that going on. It has some brilliant, brilliant swings and stories. I feel like you should almost look at it more like a Twilight Zone or something. It's like, I mean, that was the point. Yeah, it's like an anthology type thing, but it's just all pertaining to this one ship crew. But what I love about it. And all the things that have like beleaguered, beleaguered, what's wrong with me? Beleaguered. Beleaguered. That beleaguered anthology series and sketch comedy shows from time immemorial. Those same production problems hit Star Trek the ex- like fucking hard as hell. Yeah, this and this is this is going to be my grand theory as we go through the history here. Is my entire life I've been told with like reverence that Star Trek was ahead of its time and a progressive bastion and this utopian vision of the future, and then like I end up watching it for the first time with like uh, clear eyes, and it is a fucking like go-go boot like yeah. sexy romp where manly men go and fuck with like weird foreign cultures yeah and like every single lady is either like a waif or conniving <laughs> and like uh even even like the famous interracial kiss that like rocked the world like the two actors while it's happening are like this is wrong i don't want to do this so, like <laughs> it's just like half of me was like oh weird this is like this is the great, you know, example that pushed boundaries. And then the other half of me is like, oh, God, how fucking bad were things back then? Yeah. When this was the boundary pushing thing that moved the conversation. Forward. Totally. I, and I will say, going back to my anthology series remark, I think what I was getting towards with that um, is that I was really impressed with the range of mm-hmm. storytelling that you get with this series. You just you, you have like your list of like best episodes just completely different tonally, I think. Mm-hmm. And so all these different episodes are just telling you interesting, different types of sci-fi stories. Some of them are action-packed. Some of them are, you know, some of them are super, like, war-oriented. But then there are others that are just, like, these concept pieces that are so brilliant. You know, you're right. Yes. Uh, can I read for you the first draft of the first treatment that Roddenberry wrote with that he presented to uh, TV studios? What if I said no? I'd be upset, but then I'd try and shoehorn it in later because I was really proud of this find. <laughs> yes, please, please tell me. Created by Gene Roddenberry, first draft, March 11th, 1964. In all caps, Star Trek is dot, 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 a one-hour dramatic television series. Action, adventure, science fiction. The first such concept with strong central lead characters plus other continuing regulars. And while maintaining a familiar central location and regular cast, explores an anthology-like range of exciting human experiences. 
And then they go into like some of their early uh, ideas, such as the cage, which was the pilot episode and the women and to skin a Tyrannosaurus <laughs> um, from this document, of course, is also the famous uh, wagon train in space. line. Yes. Wagon train in space, because I just forgot how dominated television was by Western <laughs> TV shows that the, the only way you could sell a show that wasn't Western, you had to compare it to a Western. And it's so funny now how few Western TV shows exist at all. Maybe most notably would be like Deadwood, which was canceled too early and all that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like a kind of a failed project by the end of the day. Oh, people are going to talk about uh, superheroes in this era with the oh, same yeah. level of like confusion. Like, why was this? <laughs> so anyways, uh, let's get right to it. The man, the myth, the legend Gene Roddenberry, uh, born in August of 1921 in El Paso, Texas. His family moved to L.A. in 1923, and this was actually due to his father getting a job as a police officer in Los Angeles. He as a kid, loved uh, different pulp magazines. John Carter of Mars, I believe we've talked about that on this show before. A Civil War vet gets transported to Mars. You've got Tarzan, a man who lives in a jungle raised by apes, and the Skylark series, which is a space opera series about a man who builds a spaceship and travels to other alien civilizations. All of these, I feel like you could wrap into what Star Trek is all about. Do they uh, mention Horatio Hornblower in there? I got uh, a lot of Horatio Hornblower shit. Please and, give me what. What's the deal with Horatio Hornblower? Uh, very. It's a naval adventure series about an unconventional captain who, like, you know, breaks the rules and has to navigate these unique scenarios as they reach various ports of call across yes. the world, uh, including the overly analytical first captain and like his unique ability to just get very beautiful women attracted to him everywhere he goes. Yes, 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 yes. And I think I even did have that somewhere. Is that the model for uh, Kirk? Was that the direct model he used? I guess I'll have to get to it later in my notes, but there was definitely a character that might have been that one that he used. Anyways, um, so he goes to L.A. City College, and he majors in police science. And there he gets interested in aeronautical engineering, uh, which essentially is the building of air and spacecraft, of course, because he's the fucking guy who created Star Trek. <laughs> uh, he gets a pilot's license through the U.S. Army Air Corps, uh, to which he enlisted in at the end of 1941. You know what? Every single episode for the past several episodes has just made me feel like a big old wimpy wimp, because all these dudes, they all served in the Army, and then went on to create like crazy shit afterwards, and I'm just like, man, what is going on? I guess you just had to back in the, I guess it was just more of a norm. I mean, this is around I World d- War II. It was and, World War II. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was very much less optional. Uh, so anyways, he joins the 394th Bomb Squadron, the 5th Bombardment Group, and flew the Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress, which I love the the name of that plane. It's It sounds like it would, uh, an alt name to the uh, Enterprise. At one point... While piloting one of these Boeings, he overshoots the runway by 500 feet, hits trees, and the whole plane gets set on fire. Two men are killed. Um, you have to understand that a B-17 Flying Fortress uh, taking off is just filled with death and bombs and ammunition. The fact that, he, li- the with- fact that he lived is f- insane. I can't believe it. And apparently in the report, he was absolved of any responsibility. I'm not really sure what happened there, but it just sounds tragic. He ends up spending the rest of his military career in the U.S., and flew around as a plane crash investigator. That's got to be a fun job, Jake. He, he got into one more plane crash as a passenger. 
This man was in two plane crashes. He was in three. Oh, he was in three? I, maybe more. No, you're right. Yeah, I didn't even get to it. That's like a. That's the most common theme is just how many plane crashes young. I forgot about this. And then he becomes a pilot in 1945 for Pan Am or Pan American World Airways. That used to be like as big as U.S. Airways. Pan Am's not around anymore, right? Uh, no. Uh, so he gets to another crash as a pilot for Pan Am in the Syrian desert and manages to keep some passengers alive. He had to drag them out, several injured passengers that he was able to keep alive. 14 did die, actually, though. But um, he had two broken ribs when he saved all these passengers' lives by dragging them out of the plane. That's got to be an unbelievable this is, adrenaline rush. This is a weird, rush. wonkish kind of like uh, issue within, I guess, the Trekkiology community. Mm. Because the later in life Ronberry got, the more exciting this story ah, got. Interesting. To the point where I don't want to be like I'm sure like it something happened, but uh, the st- way he ends up telling the story like later in life, uh, where he like rescues people from the wreckage and like guides them across the desert like single handedly to get them to safety, mirrors the plot of the 1965 movie The Flight of the Phoenix a little <laughs> too closely. You know what? Sometimes you just you, you you think you lived a thing that happened on a TV. It happens, Jake. You know, mm-hmm. I thought for a while that my only weakness was kryptonite. <laughs> and I would tell people over and over again, they were just like, that's Superman. And I was like, am I Superman? And they're like, absolutely not. Mm. You know what I mean? It just happens. It just happens. I also thought at one point I was an old lady living with three other old ladies in a house. Um, were you the <laughs> sexy one or the sassy one? I, fuck, the- I was pretty sassy, but I fucked a lot. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I fucked big. I 69 <laughs> mostly. I'd keep tabs. I'd keep track. I had a little notebook of the different sexual positions. And I every was in. time you finished, you would just look up and go, thank you for being a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I got to start using that. Um, so anyways, uh, he decides maybe he should this stay away from airplanes. Show. This is an educational show. <laughs> <laughs> he decides maybe I should stick to not airplanes. Um, and he resigns from Pan Am in 1948 to pursue his dream of becoming a writer. But initially, in order to get that dream fulfilled, he took his father's trek, track rather, and got a job at the L.A. Police Department in January of 1949 and was a traffic cop for the first 60 months before being transferred to the newspaper unit where he would become the chief of police's speech writer. So he's even getting some writing work in his kind of day job just to suffice while he tries to be a writer in TV and film. He gets his first foray into television as a technical advisor to a show called Mr. District Attorney because he has this specialist now. He's, you know, he has all this flight training, but he also has all this like law training and he's able to actually sneak in with that previous experience. Um, And it actually leads to a writing job on that show under the pseudonym Robert Wesley. Now this gets him in at a place called Ziv Television Programs because I guess we should explain a little bit about how things were back then. Back in my day, you fucks, we only had three channels. Actually, this isn't back in my day. This is back in my dad's day. You had three channels to choose from, and that was it. There's no Hulu, no fucking Netflix, no fucking cable even. I mean, they did have Crackle, which is weird. <laughs> Crackle exists. No one used it. Even though it was, a, it was exactly like Netflix had all these great programs on it, no one still even bothered with it because they were just like, Crackle, what the fuck is that stupid ass shit? Oh, that must be a sad office to work at. Do you imagine I, the Crackle office? I just imagine it's empty except for like one guy in a mountain of cocaine. <laughs> 
Smoking some crackle. Uh, so he gets a job at Ziv Television Programs, and this is like a, a production company that sells TV shows to sin- stations for syndication. Because all you have at this point, what is CBS, ABC, NBC, are mm-hmm. the three, right? Those, that's it. So you have along production- with like if the city was big enough, there'd be like a single like network, that right? You could like. Sell stuff. But. So, so this these production companies would would they had a uh, they had a lot of air to fill too. So the big three they only really uh, created their own programming for like prime time, mm-hmm. which leaves all of the other hours of the day to fill up with like bullshit cop shows and like westerns and whatever I, that they know this like this is like golden age tv shit so it's stuff like the westinghouse playhouse theaters revenge studio b and like yeah it's just like weird teleplays of like yes. the man who crossed at midnight <laughs> so you'll never make it bertram filibuster <laughs> so ziv television programs is like in, in the business of just like hawking tv shows and by 1955 they were producing more than 250 half hour t- television episodes a year this was because including such hits as My Father the Donkey and Gladys Knife Woman by Day. <laughs> so he's working for Zib Television programs on all these different shows and he's able to s- sell scripts to a show also uh, called Highway Patrol. He's essentially in the like cop show business at this point. Um, and he ends up getting enough work as a writer at this point in June of 1956 that he is actually able to resign from the force and be a full-fledged writer. After that, he becomes a head writer for a show called The West Point Story, which was an anthology series in cooperation with the U.S. Department of Defense, said to be based on actual events that unfolded at the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. So, And that's not the first time he's going to have worked with the U.S. Department of Defense. From here, he writes for several shows, and he's pitching many others. He's kind of in the whole studio system at this point, and he's just kind of getting projects and trying to get projects off the ground. It, it, it proves uh, it still is and was back then very hard to get a project off the ground, but he ended up getting a few gigs. He was actually supposed to, and this is kind of the first time you get a sense of Roddenberry as someone who sticks to their guns and is very, um, how should we say, socially progressive. How about that? We'll Mm -hmm. say socially progressive. He is supposed to write on a show called Riverboat, but he ends up arguing so much with the producers who just refuse to let black people be on the show that he was eventually fired. He was so fucking pissed that 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 was going on. And by the way, that is the state of television at this point in our story, there are you know there are TV shows where they're like afraid to put a black person on. Not the only show. that, a show called Riverboat. Riverboat, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so he gets black a- people in the South. I won't believe it. <laughs> he gets a contract with Screen Gems for a hundred thousand dollars guaranteed, and produces on a American Western called Wrangler. Um, I know, right? I, I couldn't imagine. That's got to be. It's got to be awful to be on like a C-list western. You know what I mean? Back in back oh, in these geez, times. Oh, jeez, Haas! More cows escaped from the pen. You know who to call. So, so Wrangler it, presented in Panasound. So it I, I got to. I got to get more cows. That's <laughs> great. See you next week. I'm bored. <laughs> Wrangler, one man alone in the alone wilderness. and bored. <laughs> I'm going to take up box making. Starring Rex Bilson as Wrangler. My name's not Rex, it's Charles. <laughs> Just immediately contradicting the narrator. Me cut to like an average American living room and people just being like, holy fuck, there's people in this box. <laughs> <laughs> Set it on fire. <laughs> 
hey, that's me, Charles. I'm now in your room. Because te- television was magic back at this time. Uh, Presented so, by Borium Phosphate Soda. Borium, now that? with less lead. What does that even mean? So he, the past is funny to me because all the people there are dead and are dead and stupid. Uh, now he's like a Hollywood guy. He's got he just got this hundred thousand dollar contract, which means he's like not you know he's not like a list or anything, but he's fucking no, got money. He's but he's chilling riding. In Beverly Hills. He's taking speed. He's absolutely yes. sleeping around on his wife and mother of his two children. <laughs> yes, and he's also using a lot of that money that he got to write and that wasn't uh, a joke. It was total, definitely a total thing we'll scumbag. get to. Definitely a thing we'll get into. Um, he's he's using his own money to write and pr- for writing and production gigs through Screen Gems. He pr- he uh, pitches a bunch of different things. One most importantly though is a concept based on the 1961 sci-fi film. Master of the World, which is about a multi-ethnic crew traveling the world on an airship, discovering different civilizations and everything. And this project doesn't actually go anywhere, but it definitely starts the journey that he goes on to getting to Star Trek on television. He also starts working on a show called The Lieutenant that got onto the NBC Saturday Night lineup in 1963 about a young lieutenant's first post on a file platoon and his mentor. File platoon? I think that's a, 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 a wrong word. But anyways, he's on a post with his mentor. He's a fucking young lieutenant. and Not um, only that, but it uh, had a very important side character who was also a lieutenant, but he was black. And Ron Berry kept trying to tell stories about this character. And the networks kept just like censoring and shutting down any single time. And I, I don't want to like talk about like, you know, I don't I don't even want to like pitch it as like Ron Berry's like amazing like thirst for justice I think the dude just really wanted to like liked talking about shit that he knew people didn't want to talk about yeah he he ends up doing an episode called to set it right about a black and white marine finding common cause together um, which was uh, actually by the way the first time he worked with Nichelle Nichols uh, this was her first TV gig and there were other Star Trek people like Leonard Nimoy and, and folks like that that ended up appearing on this show well uh, the Department of Defense did not like to to set it right and uh, ended up withdrawing their support from the show because they were going to have this white and black soldier getting along <laughs> on a TV. It's so crazy to me. Like, what are you talking about? Wouldn't that help your, like, wouldn't it, that help? Absolutely. <laughs> Get more people to, like, sign up for the army. I don't know. Maybe, it w- I don't know. People were different back then. You're the army. You can just lie and tell people that it's, like, nice and more civil. Like, that's the whole point of the army is you get people to sign up and then, ta-da, you're in the army now. Yeah. Like, uh, I could see an ad tomorrow that was like, hey, hey, Jake, join the army. Fat people get free uh, scooters. I'll be like, sweet, where's my scooter? They'll be like, no, you're you're going to Yemen. But scooter <laughs> is the thing that would sell you? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like. Uh, I, I, electric, like one of them like, uh, zippy boys. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'd even settle for those like mono wheel. You ever see those guys running around? Dude, all I want is the cart. For the for the for the target or the Kmart, you know what I mean? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The fucking motorized boy. That's what you got to offer. Nah, I mean rascal. I'll just scam the government for one of those boys. <laughs> I just got reminded of a great um, lady on one of those motorized carts, and she's being racist to these neighbors. <laughs> she's driving slowly past, and they're like watering their garden with a hose, and they just turn the hose on her, <laughs> and she's just slowly like ah ah. Because she can't move, and he's on this cart, and so they just sprayed her with a. People who say the internet is bad for society, how else am I ever going to see that video? Come on, I mean it's such hubris. All right, so Roddenberry's next idea: he wants a multicultural crew. 
Um, he'd already been toying with that idea in a ship that explored the ocean influenced by Darwin's five-year journey around the world. He also added a, yes, that's what I thought, Horatio Hornblower character. See, the character you mentioned before, he wanted to have his version of that character. Yeah, Horatio Hornblower, just to add a little bit more description, it's a fictional Napoleonic Wars era Royal Navy officer in a series of novels by C.S. Forrester, characterized as intelligent and highly skilled uh, uh, shipman. Burdened with by intense retrospect, introspection rather, and self doubt. So a vulnerable leader, in other words, which is definitely on what what gets us to Kirk. Also key to the Hornblower uh, novels is that uh, he was always the captain of like a medium to like small sized ship mm. that was always sent on like diplomatic and like escort missions. And so what would end up happening is they'd always have to like square off against some like insane galleon or some like devastating like spanish man of war like destruction ship and it was always down to like the captain doing something unconventional or clever to kind of outfox the uh, the enemy ship so that's like rathacon that's like you know every single episode where it's like but captain we're doomed unless we reverse the polarity right <laughs> right right um, and God, so, I love it when they reverse the polarity on and, shit. And so at this point, Roddenberry's like, and I quote, fuck the sea. <laughs> I'm putting it in space. We all want to fuck the sea. It's <laughs> innately erotic. So that was the thing. He loved to have sex with the sea. And um, he, but while he was doing it, he would look up at the stars. So that's how we ended up making the transition. Um, I want to say 80% of uh, the things I just said are completely fake. He ends up putting together a 16-page pitch called Star Trek. He pitches it to MGM with no offer. But then he gets a gig as a producer at a studio called Desilu Productions. Desilu. I love it. For Desi Arnaz and, uh, oh, my God, why can't uh, Why am I? Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball. Yeah, God, Jesus. I'm I, I was started like doubting myself for I was a like Lucy, there. like for Desi Arnaz and I love Lucy. That's not her name. Um, uh, I love how much Lucille Ball has to do with this story, which, by the way, I didn't look much into Lucille Ball, but isn't she like a nightmare person? Um, isn't she like uh, horribly mean to like <laughs> work for or with? It was anybody in Hollywood who like survived that long had to be a fucking monster. Right. But well, uh, she is, has, is instrumental, bizarrely enough, in bringing Star Wars to the TV. I don't know if we'll ever get to talk Talk about uh, Desilu Studios, but like what happened was like all of TV was made in New York. All of TV was made in New York. They shot all these shows on like shitty, like almost like tape stock. I don't even know. But when you watch like a, an old show like The Honeymooners and it just looks like crappy, that's like because like that was the standard for TV. They set up shop in LA along with all the other movie studios because they needed to escape the uh, Edison patent like fucking nightmare army. And they shot their thing on film. And then once they were established, they ended up buying property and setting up other studios for other people to use. And so in essence, they became like, you know, I Love Lucy became a cultural phenomenon and a giant uh, syndication thing because theirs was the only show that could be re-aired and still look good on TVs years later. And anybody who wanted to make a TV show basically had to go through them uh, in L.A. So mm. they were this, like, we think of it as the I Love Lucy company, but they were a fucking juggernaut at the time. But the problem, were they? Because I, I had seen here that they didn't really have a hit since I Love Lucy. That they really hadn't had a big success, and they were kind of desperate at this point. Whether the production company had a hit, I don't know, but they were still, like, their studios were still, like, highly in demand. Gotcha. So Roddenberry takes his idea to the head of programming there, a guy named... Oscar Katz, who helps him pitch the show to the networks. CBS passed 
because they they only really took the meeting because they were also working on a sci-fi show <laughs> called Lost in Space and they just wanted the intel. Mm-hmm. Um, then they take the show to NBC and they focus the pitch more on how it is like uh, Western shows like Gunsmoke or Wagon Train, as you said, Wagon Train in Space, right? And the network ends up funding three story ideas and they select one of them to be made into a pilot and that would be The Cage. Now, I will say this. I wasn't exactly... I, w- I was a little surprised. It's all on Netflix, by it's the way. It's the first episode on Netflix. It's the first episode on Netflix. I didn't realize they included it in, you know, because it is it is really different. And um, especially the per- the performers who are playing it. Um, he ends up... So, so you mentioned him having an affair, right? So he was having an affair with one specific woman, Majel Barrett. Uh, I don't, I guess Maj- that's Majel, that sure, Majel Barrett. And um, he's just banging her <laughs> silly. He's just up against the wall on the roof. It's disgusting. And it's just every, they, they are doing, we- they're trying weird stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> to be fair, back then, weird stuff was eye contact. <laughs> yeah, weird stuff was eye contact and saying, I love black people. Um, uh, (laughs) So anyways, he writes a part just for her. This is like classic fucking Hollywood shit. He writes a part called uh, named Number One. And yeah, they're they're fucking. And then it was Barrett who actually ends up suggesting the part of Spock going to Leonard Nimoy. So we do have her to thank for that. And then he um, goes to the set of The Outer Limits, and he's like studying their process. He, I think, really loves their show, Outer Limits sci-fi anthology show. He ends up straight up hiring some of their people for the pilot and even used some of their props and set pieces as well for, for this video play called The Cage. Uh, he also, his original captain was a, had a different name. And captain this is, Pike. This is really bizarre to me because he changed other names after, like, it's like almost like the actor, they, belo- they were married to the part and therefore he wouldn't just have a different Captain Pike, he would just change the name altogether, if that makes sense. I thought that was bizarre. But Jeffrey Hunter is the man who plays Captain Christopher Pike. This man, even though um, I will say... um, Handsome. uh, I will say Shatner looked a lot more like a leading man back in the day. But there's just something, and we'll get into more of that later, but there's something about him that makes him like... He he's sure he's like a leading man, but he's just he's like a nerdy leading man or something. I don't even know how to describe Shatner as compared to this guy. Is oh, like, Shatner's a goof. He's a goof, right? But Captain Christopher Pike, played by Jeffrey Hunter, Jeffrey Hunter, this guy is like a chiseled, super duper leading man. But just also, look kind at of this, a, the chin of a god. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But maybe the personality of a um, of a book. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, not the most no boring pa- object of all. With no pages on it, or no writing on it. You know what I mean? A, a piece of paper that is blank is what he is. He sucks. He's an idiot. Um, I'm just kidding. He's fine. But he ends up um, getting the part. Uh, Ca- and Captain Christopher Pike, this is what happens in the episode. He receives a distress call from a planet in the Talos star group. The crew beams down, and it turns out to be a trap set by the aliens there using a beautiful woman and a fake camp of survivors from a scientific expedition as bait. Uh, and they want Pike and the woman to repopulate their ravaged planet. Because essentially what they're able to do is create illusions of whatever you want. And so their own c- civilization fell apart because they just got essentially lost in their own illusions and stopped, like, fucking or doing anything. Uh, you know what I mean? So um, it's all this kind of weird, like, 
repopulation science experiment and um pike manages to escape and the woman decides to stay because she's only beautiful because of the illusion that they put on her to be beautiful she's actually this gross old lady at this point it's a whole thing i watched it uh it, and it definitely do- i definitely understand why uh spoiler alert but mbc decides not to go with the show based on this particular pilot it makes sense it's uh it's interesting because this is one of the things that makes star trek so first of all I, I didn't watch it. I've only heard secondhand. But, like, is this true? Apparently, the first thing you see uh, Spock, still played by Leonard Nimoy, uh, do in this pilot episode is he's laughing. Uh, like, I hear yeah. Spock is, like, way more anim- animated. Pike has, like, a, what's it, a number as, a, is it Majel who plays, like, his co-captain? Yeah, like, number one almost. Vice captain? Number whatever. one almost seems like an android. She feels a little out of place as no, well. No, they, they, they say on purpose, is like, normally a woman be, wouldn't be able to do this, but you've got a weird computer brain yeah. and aren't like them dumb females. So number one was essentially the Spock. Mm-hmm. Like, she was the emotionless, like, whatever. You know what I mean? And it doesn't, and, and you can just tell, and maybe it's just knowing the fact that they were having an affair and then he wrote a part for her. Mm. But it, she just doesn't feel like she belongs in a role of that le- uh, at that level. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? She just, even though she's supposed to be like emotionless, she's like too emotionless. Like there's just not enough charisma there. There's not enough. You know what I mean? And it just doesn't feel right. Um, which of course is she ends up getting replaced and and her her, her part gets removed and she she ends up getting a different role, a smaller role on the uh, Enterprise. Um, but that first, what happens is, is that they. Uh, Show this to NBC. First of all, Jeffrey Hunter had a six-month exclusive option for the role of Pike and turned it down in order to focus on motion pictures. Poor guy. No, he was asked to come back, and he turned it down. Yeah, I know. And uh, that's a that's a bummer because <laughs> you know I mean he would have I, I mean some you know they're definitely this this crew of actors definitely have qualms about being typecast because of this TV show but still I think that this was probably a better career scenario than uh, anything else. Oh God, this guy had. I have his I have his uh, memory alpha wiki page open and poor guy because he ended up dying in 1969 from complications from a brain hemorrhage. Oh Jesus, the worst. So, anyways, test audiences were not into this episode. I get it too. It's very slow. It's very quiet. It's very just like it, it, there's just not enough going on, and it definitely doesn't have any of that wagon trail in space. I think they ordered a two-hour pilot when really the story, as written, only had like even an hour at most, and they had to stretch it out unnecessarily. Yeah, it's thing. just it's very quiet and just sleepy. Um, uh, and I think that maybe it, it almost pushes the stereotype of what people at a glance think Star Trek is, mm-hmm. right? Just like too cerebral, too quiet, too whatever. But what's fucking crazy is that NBC ends up ordering a second pilot, which is incredibly, incredibly unprecedented. Not only that, a second pilot for a production as expensive as the first pilot. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, costs like $3 million in today's money for, ju- for just to test them up, just to like see if it works. And apparently Lucille Ball was like super instrumental in convincing NBC to let them try again. So Roddenberry, he works on a few scripts, but the one that he worked on with Samuel A. Peoples, which is titled Where No Man Has Gone Before, uh, is the script that NBC decides to run with. And uh, apparently Peoples, this guy, he's a big Western writer. He wrote on Bonanza. He wrote on The Legend of Jesse James. He's like, he's a fucking, 
he's he's the he's the fucking man and they pull him in to work on this thing spock is the only returning cast member besides uh majel so that he returns for his role so yeah actually uh uh after lucille ball convinces them to make it they're they're they have to shuffle some things around to try to get it right the second time william shatner is this is where he is recast as the ship's captain and the name is changed to james kirk so let's talk about william shatner for a second here you fuckers born in montreal to conservative jewish parents he went to college for economics and went on to be a business uh, manager at the Mountain Playhouse, a theater in Montreal. So he started out as a businessy, nerdy nerd. And from there, he was cha- trained as a Shakespearean actor at the Canadian National Repertory Theater, which is why I think he talks so weird, because he was classically trained in Shakespeare. And I think um, you almost can sense that him breaking down the iambic <laughs> pentameter in the way that he speaks, you know what I mean? In the way that he accents things. It's almost like... He took a script with, like, normal writing on it, but he, like, only could read it like one read Shakespeare. And when one regurgitates Shakespeare out loud, they probably add pauses in places that if you were to transport back to Shakespearean times, like, you wouldn't put a pause there. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? It makes – there's the the, – it's like if you're playing Hamlet, you want to, like, seem contemplative, so you always add, like, weird pauses and and over, like – but because you don't like fully understand the text in the way that it was intended to actually be said because you're not in Stratford upon Avon in fucking 50 when 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 was Shakespeare a thing 1500s whatever you you uh, you weren't I back said there that like I knew like, do you know <laughs> no yeah I said 15 and I was like I don't know when he was a thing um next week our wizard of the bruiser episode on william shakespeare uh so anyway he got the goatee and the queen loved his dear and he wasn't a guy it was a bunch of different people now <laughs> so uh where was i he captain kirk yes yeah, so he's shakespearean trained and um i cannot list all of his credits because it's fucking ridiculous he's one of those guys that got into the studio system and just did a shitload of different roles uh his first tv role big tv role was as ranger bob in the canadian howdy doody show and his first film was called butler's night off so just it just it's always like you were just like make up a dumb movie (laughs) title from the 40s And he did several more films and TV shows after that. He had a leading role in Hitchcock Presents um, in an episode called The Glass Eye. And then, of course, if you don't know this, it's a fun factoid. He was uh, the main guy in the TV version of Twilight Zone's classic episode, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. He was the essentially the... Um, I'm terrible with names today. Captain, there's something on the wing. <laughs> a, a gremlin. It's I'm a gremlin. <laughs> yeah, it's I, confirmed. I, I love that scene when the gremlin just kind of like, you got me. You got me. And then he just left. <laughs> <laughs> you got me, jerky. There's a, no. He shows up a few times in uh, Twilight Zone. It's always like a fun yeah. surprise when you're like, oh, this is a Shatner one. Yeah, yeah, it's super cool. So anyways, Shatner's in. Um, they changed the name to Captain Kirk. And they drop number one as per NBC's wishes. They give Spock her emotionlessness. They were worried about Spock too because they were like, he looks like a devil man. Uh, the uh, they the makeup was on a little thick. They hadn't gotten the ears right, and they were doing screen tests where they like painted him red. Mm. And uh, when the color footage was converted to black and white, it just made him look like he was in blackface. So they uh, got rid of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So uh, yeah. According to Nimoy, he says this. I, 
this is one of the things that we got to acknowledge is these people are on the convention circuit for so long that like these anecdotes take on the yeah they the take on legendary the proportions but uh he claims that when they were filming the new series i mean you know the new pilot he was like uh, his the line this famous spock line was fascinating and he like on set was like fascinating like whoa that is fascinating i am fascinated like he just kept being excited and the um director had to like sit him down and it's like okay but try like like a cold science you are the science officer this is like cold like almost doctor like interest like yeah. try saying it more more subtle and so like that was the first time you had to go fascinating yeah like and that like birthed the entire character well, let's talk about the birth of the man himself, born in the West End of Boston to also Jewish immigrants. I'd hope so. <laughs> he worked uh, a lot of... <laughs> what? I had this fucking... Ba- I, can you do a Boston action? Uh, and, yeah, yeah, fuck a right. No, it's, we're back to... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just Park the card, Harvard, yeah. As fucking babies, a fucking Jew. <laughs> How the fuck did this happen? Yeah, so they worked, uh, he worked a lot of odd jobs as a kid to pitch in and help with the family, so obviously they weren't, like, the most well-to-do. But pretty early on, he wanted to be an actor. He also had a phenomenal singing voice. He got a part in a play at the age of 17... Oh. Uh, this is a story I heard about uh, Leonard Nimoy's phenomenal singing voice. The bar mitzvahs. His bar mitzvah yeah. was such a was such a fucking roof burner that a, a, another synagogue asked him to come the next week and do it again. And, and William Shatner had a quote where he's like, he's the only man I know who got like two, rocked two bar mitzvahs or something like that. <laughs> it sounds like a Shatner. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, he's he's uh, decides he wants to be an actor. He gets a part in a play. Um, that was so just amazing. It was a play that really reminded him, resonated rather, uh, so much with him because it was about like a poor Jewish family. And it, it, it was that play at the age of 17 that convinced him to really pursue it for life. He ends up going to Boston College for drama, but then moves to L.A., um, and he's a big Stanislavski guy, big method acting guy, really into that kind of thing, into like really like trying to live the life of the part you're trying to play. He ends up, like everybody else, serving as a sergeant in the U.S. Army Reserve for 18 months. And um, after that, in trying to get work, he went through kind of a similar thing I went through at one point in my quote-unquote acting career. He realizes like, He did oh, a Taco Bell commercial. He did a Taco Bell commercial <laughs> he, in his underpants. No, he realized he was just like, and for him it was his slender appearance, and he had some other reasons for it. But he just, he was never going to be that leading man, right? <laughs> he was always going to be, he realized he, he had to really turn to supporting work and character work. Because that was where he was going to find his strength. And this is also true for me, this quote from him. I'm a second child who was educated to the idea my older brother was to be given respect and not perturbed. I was not to upstage him. I don't remember, like, about, uh, you know, him giving getting respect. But I will say this, like... As a younger brother, like, I lose on purpose a lot. Aww. You know, like like when you fight and, you know what I mean, when you wrestle and stuff. It's like your job to lose that, the the wrestling match. You know what I mean? Like, you're the younger, weaker brother, right? I don't know. I was the, I was the oldest of, uh, and I only had sisters, so, like, this is fascinating. Yeah, Some yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but, but I always felt, looked at it. Like, even if I had my brother in the headlock or whatever and I was, like, winning, I would still, like... You know, it would still. It would upset the, the balance. The tides too would much. turn. Yeah, yeah, and I would always end up like 
getting pinned down. And or you're whatever. a comedian, so you're a people pleaser. Yes. Oh wow. So tell me, Holden, vintage emotions. All right, please. How do tell me about your fashion? All right, please. Psych. What was it? Psychic. Uh, what was <laughs> Psychic Jerry. Psychic Jerry. That's in the. That's a Patreon bonus episode. You gotta listen. If you uh, need, there you go. If you need famous terrible German accent man, <laughs> Psychic Jerry. Jerry. Um, so he did over 50 small parts for shows like Perry Mason and Dragnet, along with a bunch of like B movies, horror, sci-fi movies with hilarious names. A couple of times, uh, got it having to tan up and play a Native American in various Westerns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he ends up appearing with Shatner actually in the spy series, The Man from Uncle. Okay, so... You've got those guys. You have Majel Hudek as back in the role of Christine Chapel, which I believe is like the assistant to the doctor. Um, and then James Doohan, Doohan is added to the cast as Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott. And he actually didn't have a name until James started just like trying a bunch of different accents. They asked him. They were like, "We let's just start running through your accent yeah, work. just do your accent work. And they landed on Scottish. So that's why they gave him the name Montgomery Scott. It and- also, there's like an actual established like um- – uh, thing where uh, back in you know the the height of the naval era, uh, a great deal of British shipyards were based out of Scotland, and so like the idea that the guy who actually knew where all the valves and where everything was built, like the engineer was Scottish because they built the fucking boats. So it wasn't, right. it fit like an established trope. It wasn't just random that a kilt wearing bagpipe pipe huffing uh, Scotsman was just in the in the engineering room. Right, 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 right. Haggis choking, fucking iron brood swilling. And you also have, we must also mention, you've got Leonard McCoy coming in as this sort of foil to Nimoy. That was a big part of the show, right? That you have this very kind of emotionless, analytical character. And um, and then you have McCoy, who's all gut, who's Mm -hmm. all emotion. And you've got... Shatner in between them as Kirk trying to sort of balance it out and 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 solve the problem sort of by hearing both of them out and so would you call it the id the ego and the super ego all right psychic Jerry <laughs> I don't know anything about any of it okay I know that like of course I've always went like with my mother or whatever and um so it's also this is also uh, DeForest Kelly was basically just played like mooks and bad guys and like quote unquote heavies in his acting career. And so being able to play this compassionate character who like was hiding this softness underneath a gruff exterior was like, actually he was, it was a part he was kind of born to play. Uh huh. And then of course you have George Takai cast as physicist Sulu. And he was later then changed to the helmsman (laughs) of the star Trek enterprise. Then you have, and this was all, by the way, for the episode, for the second pilot where no man has gone before. This is all kind of where it all comes together. The director of photography, by the way, was Ernest Haller, who won the Oscar for Best Color Cinematography for Gone with the Wind. So you've got some real brass here making this thing. uh, James Goldstone, the director, actually had to convince uh, Ernest Haller to come out of retirement for the gig. And uh, one of my favorite stories about filming this episode for uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, there was like a wasp nest up in the rafters. Oh, God. And it got rattled. And like several of the (laughs) cast and crew got horrible wasp stings. Wasp stings. And like... Luckily, that happened on a Friday, so they had the weekend to recover. But William Shatner actually had to have like a, a bunch of extra makeup put on himself because of the horrible wasp stings he he received. And by the way, wasp stings hurt like fuck. So I could only imagine having having had so many that you had to get make extra makeup to hide them. That would have been so painful. 
So, uh, yeah, there you go. And um, the second pilot impresses the network enough to get the show added to their fall schedule in 1966. You do have DeForest Kelly replacing the original ship's doctor as the character Leonard McCoy. Oh, that happens. That is that happened after this. Gotcha. And the communications officer, Lieutenant Nyota Uhura, uh, is added, played by Nichelle Nichols. And this is a huge deal because that is the biggest part that an African-American had had on a big TV show like that up to this point. Specifically, this is the quote that a lot of people throw out when talking about Michelle Nichols' role. It was that she was like literally the only black female character on screen that wasn't a maid (laughs) or like a housekeeper. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, The word, uh, the name Uhura comes from the fact that she was holding a book when talking to Roddenberry with the word Uhuru on it, (laughs) which was a, uh, I forgot if it's Somali or another African language, uh, the word for freedom. Mm. And uh, they kind of like switched around to sound like more uh, feminine. And this is uh, her first here of, she wasn't given an official first name until like the late 90s. Yeah. So for the longest time, it was just, she was just Uhura. So the Enterprise itself. Uh, you have art director Matt Jeffries to thank for that. He designed most of its interiors and uh, the starship. He I just al- want to say, Matt Jeffries, what were you doing that you made every single panel and console on the Ep- Enterprise look so delicious? Yeah. It's yum, a fucking yum. Willy Wonka factory covered in fucking tropical lifesavers. Yeah, yum, I'm not yummy. crazy, right? Those panels look tasty. <laughs> like just, just, I just want to pick one up and taste the snozberry. <laughs> Matt Jeffries also an army guy. He was a flight test engineer during World War II, so he's got really good (laughs) intel on how to make delicious-looking airplanes. He also designed the phasers, the Klingon logo, and all these other props. He was incredibly pragmatic. Does that mean he's the guy that gave us the flip-up communicator and just gave us basically the future of cell phones? No, a different guy did that, and I will talk about that guy. There's a separate prop guy. Uh, Matt Jeffries just ended up also doing prop stuff. But he was a very pragmatic guy in the sense that there's all these details about the Enterprise that makes sense on a um, like a logic level, like where the thrusters were as opposed to where the rest of the ship was, and they kept them very separate because of how dangerous the thrusters would be. You wouldn't want to keep them next to the hole, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, or, or where all the people are congregating, right? Just different different things like that. He put all the ship's workings on the interior to avoid them having to spacewalk. There was like nothing outside that you would have to go fix the ship um, to, to you have to leave the ship to fix it. His design actually influenced the U.S. Navy Master Communications Center at the Naval Base San Diego, and uh, I love it because he never watched Star Trek because, as he puts it, they turned his Navy-esque bridge into the lobby of the Hilton. <laughs> So maybe he wasn't the one who made all those delicious looking things. Maybe some other guy came in and was like, ooh. Well, this this was a big deal that um, I don't have a direct quote or like who to attribute this to. But uh, Star Trek was shot for color TVs with them in mind, not just like having a separate color feed for the random weirdos who like just happened to have shelled out for a color TV. Because it right. was still, a, you know, it was like uh, 4K TVs before... Uh, back in the HD world, you know, they, uh-huh. this was an extravagance. Mm-hmm. But the uh, f- but the team at Star Trek really had color in mind. So, like, uh, when enough people did have color TVs, again, it's another reason why the show popped so much and was so beloved in syndication. Totally. And then you've got a very horny costume designer named Bill Thies. 
Um, you have a horny costume designer named Bill Feast, and then horny Gene Roddenberry when it was time to examine the costumes. Yes. And according to legend, he would drop writing. He would drop meetings. Like, as ah. soon as it was time to inspect the female costumes, uh. he would come a waddling and demand it to be even hornier. Bill Feast did uh, costume There are work. shots in, like, the regular-ass Star Trek where the female officers have their fucking panties sticking out, like full Donald Duck butt, because the skirts are that short. Well, this is the thing. Uh, uh, well, so, uh, real quick, Feast did Spartacus, Harold and Maude, Pete's Dragon, uh, uncredited for Pete's Dragon, but he... Had a he had a whole thing about it. I think Roddenberry chose him because Thies had a knack for getting really sexy costumes past the censors. Mm. He had actually a uh, what he called the Thies titillation theory. He had his own sexy costume theory. He said, which which, uh, and I state the sexiness of an outfit is directly proportional to the perceived possibility that a vital piece of it might fall off. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So yeah, he's he's uh, to thank for all the all them rockin' ladies mm. in the swingin' swingin' Star Trek episodes of the original series, and then it oh is- man, when Uhura goes to the mirror dimension and she got that like belly shirt going, like <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm a, like I'm a human being with full access to pornography, and I was like, oh dear. Um, and then you've got Wa Chang is the man, Jake, you can thank for those flip open communicators, which are said to have influenced the design of the cell phone. So that is that. Well, is, the, uh, uh, the specific story is uh, the Razor phone. This is this is like a Weltron territory. I can't be the one. I, I, this is like Malcolm Gladwell shit. But <laughs> the original design for the Razor phone had the uh, specific hinge flipping the mouthpiece down. And people were like, eh, I don't care. And it was only after they talked to people, it was like, well, how should it work? And everyone's like, in Star Trek, the earpiece should flip up. Mm. And then they they made that change, and everyone's like, this feels natural. This feels good. This is what I wanted. Cool. They want the Star Trek future. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. Or not the Razor, the Star Trek. Don't, don't email me. <laughs> uh, they, this show is always in kind of dire straits. They get a 16-episode It's too order. expensive. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> the NBC has only given them X amount of money. And so, like, I, what's the, you know, like, NBC's like, great, we will give you this much money per episode, and then Desilu's on the fucking line as they go over budget over and over and over again. It's a fucking money pit. But the, the, the problem for NBC is that the people who are watching this show, who are big fans, are what Roddenberry refers to as uh, quality audience, which literally means upper income, better educated males. So the people that are loving this show <laughs> is referred to as that. As Simpson fans refer to them, the nuts and gum demographic. <laughs> uh, so these people who are very good at writing very eloquent letters and who are very avid about the show that, that this show, they are the ones that really are pushing to keep it alive and really like just you can't stop them. You know what I mean? So even though the ratings are declining. As uh, the first season goes on, NBC ends up ordering 10 more episodes for the first season. And uh, the only problem is that it was pushed to a Friday night slot, which made it difficult for the young viewers who liked it to actually catch it. Uh, it was like Friday at like 10 p.m., which is too fr- late for kids mm-hmm. and teenagers are already out the door. And already out, right? So this brings us to season two. Then this this is when the show really starts to you know really kind of get its back against the wall you you even have William Shatner preparing for other projects he had no idea the show was going to last past season two season two is interesting uh Leonard Nimoy almost leaves the show because 
the fan response, it, Spock is the star of the show. Mm. It's a g- huge amount of tension on set. I, I think the actual like number of fan letters is like 10 to 1 Spock to Kirk. And, uh, you know, Spock and, and so Nimoy is like becoming the le- a lead that role. That leading man, yeah. But he's still uh, under contract as a side, you know, as a featured character. Shatner is pissed off and like trying to hold on to control because he doesn't want to be overshadowed. And thus some of the weird hammier incidents that happen in the show. George Takei gets uh, sidetracked filming a movie in between seasons with John Wayne. And due to weather trouble, filming gets pushed back too far that he can't come back in time. And they get Walter Koenig to come in as as Chekhov. And basically every single scene that you see of Chekhov in season two in the early part is just they had to hastily fill in because Sulu wasn't in the fucking country. <laughs> and uh, the producer Gene L. Kuhn, uh, kind of takes over as a story editor and does a huge amount of like positive work. This is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Kuhn is kind of considered let's let's say the Bill Finger to Roddenberry's like uh, Bob Kane. Although that's like that's uncharitable because Bob Kane's a piece of shit, as we covered in our Batman episodes. But stuff like um, you know the Prime Directive, uh, the Federation itself, actually naming it the Federation, Khan, Tribbles, Zephram Cochran, the guy who invented the warp drive. You know, these are all things that are born from him. And Roddenberry got distracted by a side project also during season two, leaving Kuhn basically full control. And that's when um, the show is actually free to be more of like me, more charming and be more personable and be funnier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of like the most beloved like character moments are from Kuhn's writing, because even though it's, uh, you know, they didn't have a specific writer's room, they would reach out to a lot of disparate, um, you know, kind of freelance writers to cover episodes for the anthology like system. Uh, it was up to the producers to kind of gloss over and make sure that the characters were consistent from episode to episode. And so when Gene Roddenberry comes back, uh, the one thing he's terrified of is the show getting too goofy. Mm. That's uh, Lost in Space. He witnessed how Lost in Space became the campy from like serious, uh, you know, science fiction show to just campy like fucking thing. He leaves Gene L. Kuhn in charge and Kuhn co-invented the Munsters. This is a comedy sitcom writer. <laughs> yeah. And when Ron Berry comes back from his uh, from his absence, he's literally witnessing the scene from the trouble of uh, with Tribbles where. James Kirk is getting pelted with fuzzy balls and everybody in the studio is having a laugh riot. And he, uh, you know, like basically storms into Coon's office, tells him, like, you're fucking out of here. You're ruining my baby. Coon's like, I'm under contract, bitch. You can't do nothing. The two were never like the same. But the writers and like the produce other producers of the show loved Coon's work and were so indebted to him that he actually ended up writing season three episodes under a pseudonym as to not piss off Ron. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, this show during season two, he's, he's worth a mention. He's worth a mention. Oh, for sure. And, and, and this show and in season two too, another person's worth a mention because there really wouldn't be a Star Trek universe as we know it without, I think Joe, but Joe Trimble, it's BJO. I don't even know what, but Joe Trimble, this lady, she was like a socialite in the sci-fi scene. She was like one of the first people going to conventions and getting really supportive of the whole, um, of Star Trek as a, on a whole. And Roddenberry secretly funds, through her, a, um, a big Save Star Trek campaign. But Joe Trimble did an interview, and I have this quote here, and I, uh, she seems like a pretty rockin' lady. She said, 
NBC figured Gene Roddenberry for a loose cannon, and they were right. Gene was as iconoclastic as he could possibly get away with, and he suffered a fair amount of slings and arrows due to his unrelenting envelope pushing. NBC was also convinced that Star Trek was watched uh, only by drooling idiot 12-year-olds with no buying power. They managed to ignore the fact that people such as Isaac Asimov, a multiple PhD, and a, and a multitude of other intellectuals enjoyed the show. So, of course, the suits were always looking for reasons to cancel shows they didn't trust to be raging successes. They used faulty Nielsen rating numbers, to prove that Star Trek was failing badly and decided to cancel it. Fans decided to take action, and we did it very well. Thank you very much. So well that NBC came on in primetime and made a voiceover announcement that Star Trek was not canceled, so please stop writing letters. The way they did this was in a kind of interesting way. They would mimeograph newsletters, and they mailed them to these addresses that they were collecting from conventions. So they ended up getting 4,000 addresses. And these newsletters, they had guidelines for the letters, how they needed to be written. Um, And they asked each person to write a letter and then pass the information along to at least 10 people, asking them to write a letter and pass the information as well. Thus was the rule of 10 born. Uh, so NBC ends up receiving 116,000 letters, though other people claim that it was actually more like a million letters. There are uh, other events staged as well around this time. 200 Caltech students marched to NBC's Burbank studios to protest, and there were also demonstrations held by Berkeley and MIT students. So at this point, they just were they couldn't they had to just renew it, which is crazy. So it was like letter writing campaigns could actually make this kind of a difference. You do see this a little bit today. People outpouring. How do we save the show? I think like what like Community Brooklyn Nine Nine. I mean, it it it, it happens today as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and the whole thing too is if it weren't for this campaign, saving the show for a third season back in the day, back in the sixties, uh, according to Trimble, a show had to have three seasons if it was going to be rerun. So getting to season three with this campaign set us up for all of the other Star Treks that we have, all of the movies, every, like none of it would exist, would have existed without this campaign. We also have to acknowledge uh, another reason why NBC was so uh, eager to dump the show is dealing with Roddenberry himself. Uh, Roddenberry was, uh, besides standing up for various important social issues, uh, was openly shit talking the network in interviews. Uh, cons- again, way over budget this move this fucking show was producing uh what were essentially hour-long movies on a radio show's budget so Um, it's season three that they're moved to 10 p.m on friday night and getting moved to that awful time slot by the way it means that ads cost less mm -hmm. which means their budget is severely cut so well they uh, they are they have a terrible uh, time slot desi loses control of the show uh they get transferred over to paramount who specifically were like hell yeah uh, Desi Lu was in huge financial trouble because uh, Star Trek, and I believe there uh, was uh, some spy show that was named, I escapes me, uh, were the two most expensive TV shows to produce at the time. Mission Impossible? Um, that was the other Desi Lu show, so maybe not yeah, Mission Impossible. Maybe but. Mission Impossible. That was shot on location all the time, so mm-hmm. maybe. So Paramount was like, wow, thanks for fucking over this competing uh, studio. You're not going to do the same thing for us. Your budget is slashed. We're not going to take any shit. And like we get, you know, it just so they move time slots and there was a huge drop in quality. 
Nichelle Nichols says, while NBC paid lip service to expanding Star Trek's audience, it slashed our production budget until it was actually 10% lower than it had been in our first season. This is why in the third season you saw fewer outdoor location shots, for example. Top writers, top guest stars, top anything you needed was harder to come by. Thus, Star Trek's demise became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I can assure you that is exactly as it was meant to be. The show was canceled after 79 episodes in February of 1969. But that's oh, not. Did we? Should we do a thing about Nichelle Nichols and her like crazy uh, work to make the world a better place? Sure, sure if you'd like to go uh, with that. After season one, Nichelle uh, went up to. Uh, this is famous. This is like there's uh, TED talks and fucking uh, drunk history episodes about this. If I'm if I'm the one telling you this, I'm sorry. Uh, but Nichelle Nichols, after the first season, uh, decided that she wanted to go back to theater, which is where she was more comfortable and felt she had more uh, kind of uh, range to show off. And uh, she was like, hey, I want to do this. Sorry, Gene. Thanks for the memories. And Gene was like, like, you're so important to the show. You mean so much. Please, like, take a weekend to think about this. And that weekend, she attends an NAACP uh, benefit dinner where someone uh, grabs her by the shoulder and is like, oh, hey, there's a Star Trek fan who would really like to talk to you. And she's like, sure, because she's affable and is used to this by now. And it turns out the fan was Martin Luther King who exclaims that he was a huge fan and that hers was the only show that he let his daughters watch. As for the aforementioned reason, she's like the only positive black female role model on TV. And she says, oh, well, that's a shame. I'm actually going to leave the show. And Martin Luther King Jr. says, like, you can't. You have to. Like, this is more important than just a TV show. Mm. And so she decides to stay. Big moment. Later on, she gets invited to NASA and she has a meeting with NASA and she actually says like, hey, you know, the space program's great, but we need to see more people of different backgrounds up there. It's all just white guys. Why is, you know, anybody can be an astronaut, right? And NASA's like, oh, that's a very good point. Um, we're all fucking white guy nerds. We don't know any black women or women in general. Gahoinkle. Uh-huh. Could you find us some? And so she spearheads an initiative to travel across the country and like basically recruit for NASA. And she ends up, she's basically responsible for not only finding Sally Ride, the first woman in space, but Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space, who nerds will know famously then got to appear in Star Trek The Next Generation. And so she's the only woman who has like helmed, the, been in a spaceship in real and fake. That's amazing. Yeah. So Nichelle Nichols is amazing, except uh, Mary, I, I know you're listening. Thank you so much for all the work you do for us. Uh, could you please play some of uh, Nichelle Nichols uh, 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 post Star Trek musical career? Perhaps her uh, homage to Gene Roddenberry, Gene. If you could just play some, uh, some of Nichelle Nichols, Gene. It's a great song if you listen to it 15 times. (laughs) So Star Trek, uh, the reason why we haven't even gotten to, and I'll briefly go over this, the reason why it's endured. Uh, After season three canceled, there was a company called Kaiser Broadcasting that purchases the syndication rights for Star Trek, arranging a deal different from most. Uh, It seems like Star Trek always gets a deal different from every other other, show on television at this time. Star Trek apparently just turned out to be a really good competitor for the 6 o'clock news. 
So, like, the big three always had 6 o'clock news. So they could put on Star Trek, and they would get a lot of people, for some reason, more people with Star Trek to not watch the news than other shows. And so they end up uh, just syndicating the shit out of it, and it becomes this cult classic. It gets a way bigger audience than ever had at NBC. The Chicago Tribune in 1987 said, Since that dark day in 1969 when NBC brought the programming hammer down on Star Trek, there probably hasn't been a 24-hour period when the original program, one of the original episodes, wasn't being aired somewhere. And so, in fact, it was so successful as a syndicated show, it was the only show ever to have its prices rise, its syndication prices rise as the years went on. It mm-hmm. just kept, because just more and more fans, and people just love to rewatch those episodes. They're all standalone, mostly. They, you know, they're all, like, super rewatchable, super, super uh, enjoyable. You can get so much meaning out of them uh, that, yeah, it just becomes this big fucking hit and uh as we're wrapping things up here i just wanted to maybe talk about a few of the most notable episodes for me personally i got to watch a balance of terror which is the space battle that's kind of like a submarine fight it has it's a it's a really cool episode very action-packed very tense the enemies too are just very interesting and in such a star trek way they humanize the enemies at the very end the romulans leader says to Kirk um, from his ship, he says, in another reality, I could have called you friend. Just to show that it's not good versus evil. Like Star Wars, it's like, no, it's uh, uh, there are no good guys or bad guys. It's just one side versus the other. They also had like a race relations thing with Spock because Spock looked like the Rom- Romulans. So they like other coworkers were like treating him weird and he has to deal with that. Just a very Star Trek fucking episode, the uh, balance of terror. Another phenomenal uh, episode is The City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, my God. I watched this the night before. It's fucking rad, dude. It is, well, a uh, a only recent, relatively recently attributed Harlan Ellison, uh, mm-hmm. who we've talked about a million times, wrote this one. Yep. And the, it, the whole thing does, like, they do a very cursory thing to get Spock, McCoy, and Leonard Nimoy down onto a magic time portal so they can transport them back to the 1930s. Yes, during the Great Depression in New York City, and essentially what happens is... So the whole thing takes place in, quote-unquote, past Earth. Yes, and McCoy (laughs) ends up saving a woman's life, and then you find out later that if, if that woman would go on to like form this pacifist group that would lead to essentially the world losing against the Nazis in World War II and having the Nazis dominate the world and which which leads to a reality where the enterprise never existed and all this stuff. So essentially what what ends up happening is Kirk falls in love with the woman but he is forced to hold Edith Keeler uh, yes. as played by ne- like the most 80s lady ever Joan Collins. Yeah, he he he, uh, a Kirk, who's in love with this woman, must hold back McCoy from saving her life so that uh, they can bring reality back to the way it was supposed to be, and and not also let the quality Nazis acting by McCoy because yeah. the first thing that happens in the in the episode is that he gets injected with what's essentially space PCP. Yes, and so for forty minutes he's just, just out of flipping his mind. the fuck out, acting his balls off. It's amazing. Um, but it's very charming. It's very like it's. Oh God, there's uh like one of the first thing that happens when uh Kirk and Spock end up in the past is that like they're getting weird looks because of Spock's ears and because of their clothes and a cop is like hi what's all the trouble here and Kirk just the first thing it blurts out of his mouth is like uh forgive my friend he's Chinese as you can see <laughs> 
So another couple ones, uh, Space Speed, which is the uh, introduction of Ricardo Montalban as uh, Khan oh Union, which sets the stage if for you, Wrath of Khan, which if is If you see the, the Wrath of Khan without seeing Space Seed, like, it is bizarre what they did with this character before they made the movie. Yeah, it's, Kirk's got to, like, use his wits and his brawn to outdo this guy who's way stronger and supposed to be way smarter than him. Uh, all the f- It's so weird how all the fights in this show there's gonna be karate chops yeah this is a karate chop heavy it was such a funny uh, uh, fight choreography the Vulcan neck pinch uh-huh. Was like just basically a flubbed karate chop and they're like no that's that's um that's a thing now we're doing that now uh and then uh my last one is mirror mirror a transporter malfunction swaps Kirk and folks with their evil counterparts in a parallel universe and um, the Enterprise in this parallel universe is part of the Terran Empire. It's a just a warring uh, spaceship, like the opposite of what the Enterprise is all it about. Tur- it's basically a hyper-violent Game of Thrones scenario where it's kill or be killed. Uh, and it's fascinating. It's great. I mentioned Ahura's sweet belly shirt. Uh, <laughs> and, and a very girdled uh, Captain Kirk in like a weird... It's They're all dressed like MC Hammer backup dancers, and I don't know why. Um, but that's where you get goatee Spock and weird Scar. Yep. Uh, that's Sulu. what introduces the idea that uh, just, if you're evil, you have a goatee. Um, that entire trope is born from yeah. that. Uh, and the mirror universe has persisted throughout like basically every iteration of Star Trek after because it's such a great gift for actors yeah. to let them just play against type. Totally. I, I kind of want to get into Discovery now. Just I, I've heard it's like after some weird like birthing troubles, there's just... Because I've been neck deep in this wiki all week, like right. I've been seeing a lot of side stuff, and like, oh, that's fucking fascinating. Totally I don't know how that works. Well, um, Trouble with Tribbles is good. Yes. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> well, I and I think for me that about wraps it up, Jake. Do you have anything else before we? Uh, uh, I say goodbye. Just how like by today's standards, like even the most like socially aware, emotionally wrought moments are kind of overshadowed by like just the swing in sixties horny Kirk vibe. Yeah, where like. Like it's it's a it's still a very like bro fantasy and that's sure. fine if you like. But take it's it a for lovable it it's a lovable bro fantasy. Just like really interesting. Just a concepts. lot of close ups of goofball Kirk just smiling into a hazy lens camera <laughs> and a woman going. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, all right. I think that about does it for Star Trek: The Original Series. Thank I, you. I know we didn't do this issue justice. I you know there's. If you're an honest-to-God Trekker, like, please let us know uh, what we could have done better because it's so much to cover. But this was – if you're new to it or if you've never paid, touched it like we did, I, I hope we have opened your eyes. Please. Uh, definitely opened my eyes. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching these episodes and, and learning about all this. So uh, I think that about does it. If you'd like to support us further than just listening and writing a review on iTunes, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash hold. Ho. And you can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And hey, if you, uh, I don't know, like really good comedy shows and sketches and comedy comics and laughter and just like chilling out on Discord with a bunch of people, uh, maybe check out dropout.tv. Uh, you know, I'd like it. And to all the people that discovered us just now, thanks to the last podcast on the left. Sorry, this is the show. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that, man. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. And, and, uh, um, all that good stuff. Uh, and always remember now, never stop whizzing. And keep on bruising.
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.